Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue, the podcast that watches and debunks crime dramas and tells you all the wonderful and gross things that you love to hear about forensics work. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. This week, we are once again revisiting a fan favorite and an absolute classic, CSI. We watched Season 5, Episode 2, titled Down the Drain. Let's get into it. So a huge wave of sewage water rushed through a sewer drain, and now the CSI team is at the entrance of this sewer drain, looking at a banged-up body. Grissom points out that his nose, chin, elbows, and toes are all lost. He says he lost all his points, like a rock and tumbler. That analogy was just like... <laughs> Too spot When they on. said that, they're like, they're like, oh, like a rock and a tumbler, and I'm like... Ow. Oh, no. (laughs) But it's true. (laughs) It is, and it hurt to hear. (laughs) So someone on scene feels the man's pant leg, and they're looking for a wallet. And I give this a green flag, because Alice and I, like, although we don't go to scenes, our investigators do, and they always look around for, like, a wallet or, like, feel around if there's anything in, like, a person's pants, if there's an idea or, or something to give them more information So we don't go to scenes, but we do this in the autopsy suite. We always look through their pants to see if there's anything that we can photograph and log and package for evidence. Yeah, you also have to be very careful when feeling the pockets because we have found needles in people's pockets. Yeah. So you have to like gently pat it on the outside of the pocket with like the back of your hand and see if you feel like the shape of anything and then go in very carefully. Yeah, I never stick my hand directly in a pant pocket either. I always like slowly pull the pocket out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you never just shove your hand in there. That could be really dangerous. You know we love PPE and we love safety. <laughs> Don't do that. Sticklers for safety here. <laughs> we just love safety, guys. We just want everyone to be safe. Anyway, they find a vial that they say will go to narcotics. They also see a wooden spike sticking out of the man's neck. They question if this could be his cause of death or maybe it was just from... Like, the water pressure that could have done it. Oh, God. That's brutal. Either way, the water pressure was that hard to shove a spike through someone's neck. I hope he wasn't alive at that point. Very much hope it was a post-mortem. Well, you'll find out later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they speak to every resident in the area, and no one knows who this John Doe is. They're going to have to walk deeper into the sewers to get more information on this guy. They walk for a while and find yet another body. They radio Grism when suddenly the, quote, body wakes up and the man's like, oh, I was just taking a nap. He's like in a puddle, though. He's like yeah. in water. Fully submerged in water. <laughs> and like how, I mean, maybe he was a real deep sleeper and just didn't notice, but damn. So they interview this guy and they ask if he's seen the dead man from earlier. The man says he doesn't know him, but if someone comes down to the sewers, That doesn't belong there, bad stuff can happen. They investigate the sewers further and find an aqua sock, which is like a water shoe, which I've never heard of anybody call a water shoe an aqua sock, but I'm also not very avid in diving or doing water activities. True. I used to wear water shoes as a kid because I'm a very texture sensitive person. As Jess knows, I don't like touching cotton balls, but I also like when I was a kid, if we would go to the beach, I didn't like the feeling of the mushy sand in my toes. So I wore little water shoes, but I'd never heard them called aqua socks. Yeah, I used to wear water shoes when my dad and I would go jet skiing. But I aqua sock was a new thing for me. Yeah. Now I go swimming all the time in rivers and stuff and don't wear aqua socks i don't mind the squishy stuff in my come so far i've come so far i still won't touch (laughs) cotton balls though jess has seen me freak out at work about it so Catherine points out that this aqua sock seems a little upscale for a tunnel rat their victim is barefoot and Catherine suggests that a homeless person may have killed him to get his shoes they keep moving through the tunnels a mile south of where they started 
There are 300 miles of storm drains, so they have a lot of ground to cover. They end up finding out a bottle of sunscreen on a lanyard, which they think belongs to the same person who owned the aqua socks. Grism's now in the morgue with the doc, who is beginning the autopsy on the body that they found in the beginning. Now, so this doc isn't holding the scalpel how I would particularly hold it. He, it's not bad, it's just, it's not as bad as the Crossing Jordan angry toddler with a scalpel episode, but he's just kind of holding it how you would hold, like, a regular knife when you're gonna, like, cut, like, a piece of meat. Yeah. So we hold the scalpel with our index finger on the top to just kind of give us more, like, steadiness for Mm -hmm. when we cut. Yeah. I don't know if this is just, like, a different grip, but I I noticed that, too. I was like, I wouldn't hold a scalpel like that, but... It just... He, like, he doesn't have, like, as much control over it with, like, the way that he Mm. was holding it. But again, not the worst I've seen, but I would do it differently. So as he's cutting, one of the techs turns away, and the doc with no more cutting, apparently, pulls back the flap of skin covering the abdomen. Okay, red flag for that. You definitely have to cut way more tissue connecting the skin to muscle and fat before you can just pull it away like that. It doesn't, like, rip apart. You actually have to cut it. There's way more work involved. Definitely. There's way more work involved. And if only it were that easy, our jobs would be a million times easier. such a breeze. I know. If it was that quick to do a Y incision and just fully have everything exposed ma'am we'd have autopsies done in 20 minutes oh my god can you imagine (laughs) (laughs) record time so the doc asks grism for the drain pan and the tech that's watching this looks even more uncomfortable and then the doc takes the bone saw to cut the chest plate off and this newer tech covers his ears which i've seen people do we've had people leave the room or like yeah what like we'll usually give people a warning if say like there's officers there to observe the autopsy we're like all right we're gonna turn the bone saw on now leave if you want to and they all like they all scatter immediately (laughs) so he cuts the ribs with a bone saw i have heard of like during autopsies it's not unheard of to use the bone saw for the ribs at this part of the exam we just don't we use shears for this part which is literally just hedge trimmers that you could get from home depot yeah and that i've heard about that a lot more but i have heard about people using bone saws for this part as well yeah we we just don't use a bone saw because we try to limit the amount of bone dust in the air because we're in such a small space then he go- he does all of this and as he's cutting blood spatters right onto his face shield Green flag because he's wearing PPE and his like the face shield is doing exactly what it's supposed to. But honestly, I was so happy to see a face shield. So happy to see PPE, but blood spatter like that would definitely not happen because you're literally just cutting bone. There's no blood there. Right. It was I I noted that too. I was like, this blood spatter wouldn't happen here, but I'm glad that they showed the effectiveness yeah. of a face shield. <laughs> I know it's for the dramatics of it, but realistically, that does not happen. Yeah, it just like squirt out at him. It looked like somebody was there with like a little like turkey baster, just like squirt blood at him. (laughs) So getting back to like the bone saw for the ribs, back in my lab days at the Whole Body Donation Center, we did use the bone saw to cut through the ribs when we were doing um, like eviscerations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. That's my whole thought. (laughs) I think we did that too. I was trying to remember when I worked in an anatomy lab at... Uh, university they I'm pretty sure we also used bone saws for ribs but I only I think I only Mm -hmm. did that once there was one day where I had to do that but yeah it's definitely a lot easier than the shears Mm -hmm. the shears just kind of make it so you just have less exposure to the bone saw dust anyway back in the show we then see a shot of the open body 
The doc did a Y incision, but similar to our complaint with the autopsy of Jane Doe, this Y incision did not go high enough. A Y incision starts with two cuts at either shoulder, and then it goes down the sternum and then continues down in one line down the midline of your body to the pubic symphysis. And the skin flap at the top of the Y should be reflected back enough to the level of the mandible or your jaw. But in the show, it doesn't even look like he cut the skin all the way from the neck at all. The skin flap at the neck is like sticking straight up, like how like autopsy dummies do because they're just fake plushy plasticky skin. Yeah, and I get why they have to do it. It's a show and it's likely not a real person. Although in Autopsy of Jane Doe, it was a real person that had like a prosthetic on. That's true. But yeah, it's just so interesting watching these shows now having done autopsies because that's not something I wouldn't have picked up on before. When I look, when I looked at it, I was like, right, I would have never looked at that more than two yeah, seconds. like he started the Y like at the armpit level, like at the pecs, and you're supposed to start it way up at the shoulders and go down and then reflect all the way up so you can see the neck muscles and everything. Yeah. So anyway, the doc pulls the chest plate out and invites this nervous tuck to come take a look. We see him take the heart and cut away one single vessel with a pair of scissors to remove the heart. And red flag again, because there's way more cutting involved and many more vessels in the heart. So some anatomy of your heart. Your heart's made up of four chambers, two upper chambers, which is your left and right atrium, and two lower chambers, which is your left and right ventricles. And your heart also has four valves, the tricuspid, pulmonary, mitral, and aortic valve. So a lot more cutting involved than just what this doctor did. Yeah, you'd have to cut away like the pulmonary arteries and veins mm-hmm. and like, it's just, yeah, you just saw like one neat snip yeah. and it was out and I was like, it was like in in like one more. line too, completely already out. He just had to cut it to detach it. Right. That was the heart, right? Like, uh, that's what I'm, I'm assuming. Sure. That's typically the first thing you take out when you're starting yeah. the autopsy. So the doc then cuts away at the skin of the neck instead of extending the Y incision upwards to expose the neck. Yeah, he just like went in there. Right? But like like, the purpose of a Y incision is to make it so if the decedent is going to get viewed at like a wake or viewing, the cuts can be hidden very nicely. But when the funeral directors put clothing over the body, so like cutting at the neckline just defeats the whole purpose of that. Right. So however, this body is in bad shape. He's very decomposed and does not seem viewable, so I'll give it a pass, but that's not normally how things are done. But for some decomp cases I've had, like, I've cut a midline from, like, the top of the chin all the way down midline to the pubic synthesis because we know and the funeral home knows that this person's not going to get viewed. So I think this was the mindset that they that they were in, so I'll give them a pass for that. We'll be generous. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully they t- already took all the pictures that they need. Because I haven't seen anybody take a picture yet. No one is holding a camera. No. So I'll give them a red flag because we never see them take any photos at this autopsy, which is a huge part of the examination. It's like 50% of our job. Yeah, I feel like that's something a lot of, I mean, we talk about it a ton. So if you listen to us, you know that it's part of the exam. But I remember when Jess called me to do my phone interview for the job, one of the questions you asked was if I knew how to work a camera. Yeah. And I did. And I told my dad that. I was like, oh, they asked if I could work a camera. And he's like, why do you need to know how to work a camera? I was like, well, for like autopsy photos. He's like, oh my God, I didn't even think that you need to yeah, take that's photos. Like, that's during- part of it. I was like, yeah, <laughs> it's a big part of the exam. At my old like lab job, we didn't really take photos unless clients asked us to take photos so that they could see what they're going to get before they basically order it. 
But we did take, we had embalmed bodies that came in and we had to like routinely take photos of them to see if there's any like change in decomposition because we held the embalmed bodies for like months on end. Interesting. So that was like the most of like my photography experience before I actually started doing autopsy photos. So I had like a huge learning curve with a professional camera. That's really interesting. And now now I'm a photography pro. You are. <laughs> Jess is the photography pro, everyone. So back in the show, Grism tells the tech to take a look at the trachea and he sees foam. And this is a green flag. This is caused by pulmonary edema caused by fluid in the air passages. So it appears that this man may have drowned. But drowning isn't the only thing that can cause this. It can also be caused by heart failure or drug overdoses. And the doc says that the heart of the victim is normal size, so he's going to do tox. And if tox doesn't come back and show a drug overdose, then the cause of death will most likely be drowning. But he can't rule out blunt force trauma yet either. He then starts the bone saw up again to cut what exactly? Because all of the cutting is done. He's not on the head yet. I know. All the the bone that he needed to cut is cut. So why are you using a bone saw for organs? You just use a scalpel the rest of the time here. He's just being dramatic. This doc, red flag for him. The only thing you need to use a bone saw for right now is the calvarium, which is the top of your head when you take the brain out. You do not need the bone saw anymore. He was just trying to traumatize the new guy. Probably. So (laughs) back in the lovely sewer tunnels, Catherine and Warwick find a helmet with an ID in the lid. The ID is for a Calvin Berkowitz that worked at a casino as a lifeguard. They also find an inner tube, and Warwick thinks maybe this guy was on his day off and decided to go surfing, quote, Vegas style? Which I guess is just inner tubing in storm sewers when there's a storm. I have no idea. So they think he grabbed a helmet and an inner tube, jumped in the channel, hit his head, and drowned. They think all the trauma on the body was caused by water knocking him around in the tunnels during the flood. So then they're making their way out when a worker asks them if they're CSI. He tells them that the city has been rehabbing manholes with fiberglass liners because the hydrogen sulfide down there eats up the concrete. He gives them bones that they had pulled out of the main line. He says that they find a lot of small animal bones down there, but he thought these kind of looked bigger and more human-like. Catherine says that animal bones can fool you and can look deceptively human, which is a green flag. Very true. People bring in bones for our docs to look at sometimes. Like if they're cleaning out their basement and there's just like random bones, they'll call the police and the police will be like, ah, we have some bones for you. Can your doc look at them? Yeah, they're always animal bones. But like if you're not trained, it could look like a human bone. So Warwick notes that the bones have a flaky texture, thinking that they're probably a few years old. Catherine says that they're going to have to flush the line. They flush the line and find more bones. Catherine thinks that she found part of a rib, and she says that the costal ridge is too deep to be an animal. So green flag here, although it's actually called the costal arch or margin, it refers to the lower edge of the chest formed by the bottom of the rib cage. It's formed by the 7th to the 10th rib costal cartilage to create the costal arch. So they have human bones. They say that the wastewater sewage is a closed system separate from the storm drain. So this body didn't just, quote, wash into the drain. Someone flushed these remains down their toilet, their sink, or their tub. There are half a million residents whose sewage all go to that line. So while they investigate the sewage line with cameras, in the morgue, they are piecing together the bones. They recover more bones from the sewage line, including pelvis fragments and two humerus, like, upper arm bones. 
Catherine says long bones shouldn't travel as far as small ones, so they must be getting closer to the source. And Warwick doesn't think that the bones could have come from someone's house sewer line because residential sewer lines are only four inches and make a 90 degree turn. So these large bones wouldn't have been able to make it through. So the blockage has to be from the main line. I learned a lot about plumbing. Yeah, I feel like I could go into plumbing now as a profession. (laughs) I was... (laughs) I did not know all this stuff about sewage and plumbing until watching this episode. The more you know. (laughs) Imagine if there is someone out there with a plumbing podcast watching this, doing red flag, green flag for all the stuff they got right about plumbing. (laughs) In an alternate universe, this is a plumbing podcast. That's amazing. In a different dimension. Sorry, I just had that random crazy thought. (laughs) Someone else is, there's a plumber out there watching this and it's like, it's not a 90 degree turn. It's actually 75 degree or something crazy. They go to the main line and they find a bunch more bones. I also loved that these bones looked like perfectly placed for the camera shot. Right? It was like, okay, this bone goes here. No, no, no. Turn this bone around. Face it. Turn it 90 degrees. Someone artistically (laughs) placed them. So Catherine, because these bones looked so pretty, photographs the scene before touching anything. Green flag. Like we were just talking about, photographs are so important. Not just in the autopsy, but also with the crime scene investigation. So Warwick goes down into the line and notes a waterline stain on the wall. He tells Catherine to pass down his fluorazine and glasses. They say fluorazine detects feces and blood. Warwick is now testing to see how high the waterline went because that would mean that something in there was blocking the pipe. I have never heard of fluorazine. Me either. I had never heard of it. I was waiting for them to explain what it was and thankfully they did. It says it detects feces and blood. Supposedly. Supposedly, you know. There's a fluorazine podcast out there right now <laughs> watching the same episode. No, but to us, this seemed pretty similar to Blue Star, and we've talked about Blue Star before. So loose bones wouldn't block a pipe like this, but you know what would? A whole body. So the water would submerge the body, and the tissue of the body would decompose until there's not enough of the body to withstand the pressure. So Bodies in water tend to decomp faster because of the moisture and the temperature. Usually a submerged body may decompose slower, but this all depends on a lot of different factors. And the fact that this is a sewage drain and there's so much bacteria down there makes it most likely that the body would decompose way faster than normal. So the doc is looking at the bones and says that the femur measurements put the person around five foot six and the pubic arch is sharply angled and less than 90 degrees, suggesting that this person is biologically male. Green flag for all the anthropology here. The accuracy of sex determination from the skeleton based on the pelvis alone is usually placed around 96%. They most likely looked at the sciatic notch, which tends to be narrow and U-shaped in males, and in females it's more like V-shaped. They also probably looked at the subpubic arch. In females, this arch is wider and U-shaped because females have to give birth. It's literally designed for a baby to fit through. And in males, this is V-shaped and narrow and is more of a 90 degree angle. They find an incised defect on the left fifth rib and the left third rib, and the tool mark appears consistent with each other. They're going to try to pull DNA from the bone. It appears that the marks were made before decomposition and not from hitting anything in the sewer line. Also look like stab wounds made from separate strikes back to front, which would have punctured the lung. The doc says he'll let them know when he has an approximate age. They go back down the manhole scene and decide to investigate the houses closest to this manhole. And they'll work their way out from there. One of the residents comes around just like offering donuts and coffee. I thought this part was hilarious. 
And I thought he was kind of sketchy, too. He definitely seems sketchy. He's just, like, inserting himself in the investigation. Classic serial killer move. I know. <laughs> that was my first thought, too. I was like, all right, he did it. But he asks if this has anything to do with the missing cats and goes on to say that a lot of people have lost pets in this neighborhood. And this is the part where I was like, oh, he's super sketch. I know. <laughs> he definitely just seemed like a weirdo to me. Like, they're investigating, like, a sewage situation and he's like how about some donuts guys and how about those cats and how about all these dead cats <laughs> <laughs> he says he hasn't personally seen anyone throw anything down that sewer line but that kids sometimes throw fireworks back in the morgue they take a sample of bone for dna testing so the tech who's doing this is the one from earlier who was like squeamish during the autopsy and we find out it's because it was his first autopsy and he says it was weird seeing a body lying on the table like that while the doc, quote, pulled out his insides. Which, yeah, seeing your first autopsy can be, it can be a lot. He did well for his first autopsy. He did cover his ears and seem squeamish, but he didn't puke or faint. That's true. I think when I saw my first autopsy, I was a, I was going into my senior year of college. Yeah. So I was still pretty young. I saw my first autopsy at 29. And thankfully, I didn't throw up or faint because it's my job now. No, I saw this autopsy and I was like, this is what I want to do. It's weird. You either love it or you don't want any part of it at all. I know. And I feel bad because there's really no way to like find out for sure until you experience it. Yeah. I mean, like you could do like virtual autopsies, but it's not the same at all. Back in the morgue, the doc said that the victim had incomplete formation of the second molar root tips and that the wisdom teeth hadn't erupted yet. So it looks like he was a teenager around 13 to 15. Green flag for the odontology that we see here. So by the time a child is 13, they should have 28 of their permanent adult teeth. Most children and young adults get their wisdom teeth between 17 and 21 years old. Did you... This is just a random question. Do you still have your wisdom teeth? No, I got mine removed. But you know, my boyfriend Dom still has his and he is 26, almost turning 27. He still has his wisdom teeth. They don't bother him at all. I got mine removed when I was 26. They didn't bother me, but uh, they didn't bother me too much because they came in not, they weren't like impacted, but they started to just like rub in like the back of my mouth. And so my dentist was just like, well, just take them out. I don't even know if mine are bothering me. I was in high school when I got them out. And I think I was the same age that my sister was when she had hers removed. And my mom was like, all right, it's time. I feel like that's most people. And I just like went on with my wisdom teeth. And then my dentist was like, do these bother you? I was like, a little bit sometimes. They're like, we'll just take them out. I was like, okay. So the eye orbits on this victim were rounded, almost oval, and the nasal aperture was narrow and tall, and the jawline was flat. Your nasal aperture is the pear-shaped bony inlet of the nose formed by the nasal and maxillary bone. So based on all these features, he was likely Caucasian. The dental records are sent out to NCIC, the National Crime Information Center, and the bones are too degraded to get DNA from, and they couldn't get DNA even from the teeth, which like I thought was a possible red flag because DNA from teeth should be pretty viable, especially since the dental tissues like enamel, dentin, pulp, and cementum offer DNA experts like the advantage of being resistant to like the physical and environmental degradation. And a tooth's DNA is located in the dental pulp tissue and the dental root. To get the genetic material out of this tissue, scientists first clean the teeth with concentrated bleach and then freeze them in liquid nitrogen, finally grading them into a fine powder for DNA extraction. I don't know how much sewer chemicals 
how much damage they would do to the teeth, but it had to be a lot if it's breaking down the teeth. Teeth are like pretty resistant to most, if not everything. Like they're so resistant to like super high temperatures, like fires, that you could still, I feel like you can still get DNA out of it. And this was just a plot line for the show. I was just going to say, yeah. The sewers, they say, are a chemical stew that degrades the bones. So they create a list of missing Caucasian males from ages 12 to 16 in the area to narrow down their search. There aren't any particularly close to where the body was found, so they expand their search within a two-mile radius. They find three missing boys that have been missing for a few months, but Catherine says the condition of the bones suggests that the body has been decomposing for at least two years. So they go wider in their search. Grism's now in the lab doing experiments with different drain cleaners. He tells the tech to fill a cup with his urine, and he then takes dead pigs, weighs them out, and puts them into two separate containers. He then asks the tech for a, quote, number two as quickly as possible. He explains that the victim's body was found in a sewer with the ambient temperature around 80 degrees. The corrosive chemicals cause the body to decompose faster than normal, and he's trying to figure out how much faster. Can you, like do that though can you like at work right can you ask someone else to poop in a bucket and not get in trouble make them sign a waiver at least i know i was thinking that i was like the urine cup is one thing i don't know why i wasn't as more faced by that but he just asked him to poop in a bucket and he's gonna go do it and i was <laughs> right he was so willing to go do it he was like ah oh, well it comes with the job he didn't say that but, like, <laughs> does it it <laughs> doesn't not that i've come in contact with him anyway so back at the scene, they're having a tough time interrogating the neighbors since they don't have a solid time frame of when the body was dumped, but so far, no one has seen anyone throw anything like a body down the manhole. Several people suggested that they talk to a neighborhood high school bully named Owen. There's no evidence linking this kid to the bones, though, so they have to get a warrant through his illegal fireworks use to search his house. The family is very unhappy with this, but they leave, and the team searches the house, and they find a lot of different ammo of different calibers, so there must be multiple weapons present somewhere in the house, and they find a shotgun underneath the couch that is loaded. They then see blood spots on the stairs heading upstairs. They swab it, look at our phenolphthalene in the wild episode, this is what this reminded me of, and it is confirmed that this specimen is blood. So, just like... A refresher, the confirmatory test, when you test it, the swab that you have with the blood will turn pink in color. They have to get a warrant updated for blood evidence collection, and until the updated warrant is, like, there, they have to stop searching. However, the two techs keep searching before the warrant is issued, so I'm not sure if this is a red flag, this is a possible one too, but I think as long as they don't actually collect or touch anything, they can, like, continue to be in the house, and then like, come back again with a new warrant, and then everything, like, won't get thrown out in a court of law. But I'm not really sure. You know who would know the answer to this? Our lovely friends, the crime scene queens. This is true. Would probably know. Shelly would know. Shelly would know the legal repercussions of this. So the techs find a gun in a closet upstairs, along with what looks like homemade pipe bombs. They call the bomb squad and swab for blood evidence on the door. They try to take the doors off its hinges without tipping the pipe bomb over, and they are able to get it off successfully, but stressfully. It was so intense. I get wanting to get the evidence, but I can't imagine seeing a pipe bomb, like, teetering on the edge, and they're like, you know what, we're just going to take the door off the hinges really quick. Like, like no, get out. <laughs> what? 
The bomb squad then arrives, and the team investigates the family that lived in the house. They make a reference to Timothy McVeigh, which is a case that we discussed in our We Have Spleen Better Days episode, so check that out if you want to learn more about him. And the husband says that there are rules in his house and that his wife and son know what to do and what not to do. The investigator points out that bombs are a Class B felony, and he could face up to one to six years for each device. And murder is 25 to life. Back in the morgue, they're investigating the closet door that they took off the hinges because they couldn't pull any DNA from the bones. There's nothing to connect this to anyway. Or not yet. Grism is still running his pig experiment, and they have followed up with 11 missing persons who fit the profile and ruled out every one of them by case history. They've only been looking at people missing more than a year because of the state of decomposition, but the condition of the bones was misleading because tissue in sewer decomposes about 20 times quicker than normal, and Grism says that the victim could have been missing for as little as five weeks. One of the texts slash investigators goes back to the searches of the missing boys, and they find one that has been missing for six weeks. The bomb squad is still at the scene and are disposing of the pipe bombs. The house has been cleared, and the CSI will keep searching behind, like, when the bomb squad is going through a room, the CSI team will be, like, right behind them. And then back at the office... The guardian of the missing boy named Travis is speaking to an investigator. He said that Travis's father left shortly after he was born. His mother is a, quote, junkie in Salt Lake City, and she says that he ran off to see his mom, but it wasn't the first time he had done it. Six weeks ago, when Travis went missing, she came home and found a note. She called his mom, and the mom said that he never showed up. The woman says that she doesn't recognize the bully Owen, and they ask for a toothbrush or a hairbrush or anything that might have Travis's DNA on it, but she says that he took all of that with him when he ran away. She says that she knows Travis is dead. They're interrogating the the kid Owen, and he says that Travis isn't a classmate of his. He thinks they maybe went to the same middle school. The investigator then asks to speak to Owen's mother in private. He says that sometimes kids get self-conscious around their parents and that maybe it would be best if he spoke to Owen without her there, reassuring her that there would be an advocate present to make sure that all of his rights are respected. But she does not want to leave her son alone with him and that her husband would not like that. Back at the house, they find medium-velocity blood spatter, which is a green flag, This type of spatter is caused by beating someone with a blunt object, for example, like beating someone with a baseball bat, and the force of blood hitting a surface at medium velocity is between 5 to 100 feet per second, and this causes the droplets of blood to be smaller in diameter and more like a spray. The CSIs are also using alternate light sources to identify the blood, so they're using blue light with an orange filter, and this is specifically designed to eliminate or transmit different colors of light, which helps the investigators view hidden evidence. They believe they found the point of origin. Catherine calls the captain, and the captain asks the mother and Owen about the blood in the house found at the top of the stairs. Owen says that maybe it was the dogs sometimes that they fight. However, animal control says that their dogs had no signs of recent injury, and the lowest point of spatter is 46 inches with a downward angle. Catherine says even if the dogs could walk upright, They couldn't be responsible for this. So the bomb squad is still investigating the house for explosives as the CSI team follows behind. In the garbage, they find like a plank of wood with like a dead animal nailed to it. So flashback to the weird neighbor offering donuts and coffee. Who was super sketchy. Who seemed super sketchy, saying that pets had been going missing in the neighborhood. 
And in Owen's room, they find more dead animals. He had like a dead snake hanging from the yeah, ceiling. Yeah, gross. Yeah. And under the floorboards, they find like videotapes of some kind. In the garbage, they find sneakers that look like they could fit a young boy, along with clothing that had been attempted to be burned. They find more blood evidence in the garage. They think that the boy was killed in the house, dragged out back to the garage, and then dumped. They find a knife in the garage, and in the fridge, they find what I thought were specimen jars. Because I... Yeah, I thought the same. I work in a morgue, and we have specimen jars that look like this. But the bomb squad leader, who's the one that found the jars, tells Grissom not to touch anything and to get out now. And Grissom was just about to grab the knife as evidence. But the jars in the fridge are actually filled with liquid explosive, and the team has to get out of the house ASAP. They have to grab what's important and get out. They all grab what they can and leave the scene. The bomb squad detonates the explosives in place. So they arrest the father and they agree that they believe that the murder weapon was the knife, but Grissom wasn't able to grab it before the explosion. They have pictures, however. Green flag for pictures. This is a big picture episode. Yeah, I was impressed. At the scenes, not in the autopsy. At the scenes, not autopsy. Yeah. (laughs) So the tool mark on the victim's ribs won't help because bone deterioration removed all individual characteristics. The best they can do is rule out a serrated blade. The videos in Owen's room didn't have any evidence of the murder or the body being dumped. The videos span over several years of just like kids running around the house and just backyard barbecue, typical home video stuff. So they agree that a teenage boy with home movies under his bed seems odd, so they're going to keep looking at them. They know that Owen went to school with Travis a few years back, but they still can't place Travis at the house. With all the fire damage, the clothes are the right size, but there's no blood evidence that could be picked up. But even if they had that, they still don't have a blood standard for Travis and still haven't positively ID'd the victim. So we've talked about this before. A positive ID is when there is a comparison to like a driver's license or an ID card or a military card, passport, or any other type of identifications that proves who you have is like who you say you have, and it can't be argued otherwise. However, Travis's grandmother was able to bring in Travis's tooth because she used to be his, quote, tooth fairy. The DNA from the tooth matched the DNA found in Owen's house. They got DNA from this tooth? Yeah! What was wrong with the other teeth? The other teeth are probably fine. The other teeth were in sewage, but I don't know how sewage would affect bone. There's so much protectiveness around a tooth. I know. This show, man. Bacteria does degrade teeth. That's why it's important to brush your teeth, everybody. But, like, that quickly? I don't know. I've never had a case like this, so I don't know. If anybody else out there knows, DM us. Actually, I don't, I, um, I hope you don't know, unless you work in this field, how quickly a body. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a forensics expert, please DM us if you know the answer to this. Right. Only if you work in this field, DM us. <laughs> so Owen and his mother are being interrogated. I also, sorry, really ran to point out, Owen is played by the actor who plays the character Todd in Breaking Bad. And I can never. He's also been in a bunch of other things. He's very talented. But whenever I see him, I just think of Todd from Breaking Bad. I haven't watched Breaking Bad. Oh, my gosh. It's a good show. It's a good show. And anyway, clearly, because I've seen it enough times to recognize Todd (laughs) from Breaking Bad. So Owen said that it was an accident that Travis came over one night wanting to buy a knife. And Owen gave him the knife. But then Travis said he couldn't pay for it. And he tried to run. He then ran into the wall and stabbed himself, according to Owen. Catherine says that story isn't possible because Travis was stabbed twice. So if you just fell on your knife, it's not likely that you would fall on it twice. I hope not. Right. Likely story. Yeah. They say if it was an accident, he wouldn't have dumped his body in the sewer. 
They don't think he dumped the body alone because they found the victim's charred clothing. They think the mother helped Owen clean up the crime scene. So the kid gets murder and the mom is an accessory and dad gets a felony for the explosive. On the home videos, they see the dad blowing up dead animals with his son at a young age. All right. One, that's disgusting and like super gruesome. And two, that's almost like grooming your child to become a killer. Yeah. Desensitizing them to that kind of violence. Yeah. yeah. In the they show like a clip of the video and he's like encouraging the wife to like record this. And I'm like, this is the weirdest home yeah. movie. He seems like a very controlling authority figure yeah and like killing animals when you're a child is like a classic sign of the start of becoming like a psychopath yeah like the triad the mcdonald triad Mm -hmm. yeah this episode it dealt with a lot of plumbing and sewage systems and finding remains in sewer systems and this made us think of a uk case where the killer was caught after attempting to dispose of his victim's remains in his apartment's drain causing plumbing issues This is the case of Dennis Nilsson. Dennis Nilsson killed at least 15 men and boys between 1978 and 1983. He was eventually caught after trying to dispose of human remains in his household drain. When the drain clearing company found the remains, they contacted the police. First off, he called the company. He was the one that called the company and was like, hey, my plumbing is all clogged. Come declog it. So anyway, all of Nelson's victims were students or unhoused men. He would invite the men and boys over to his house and would strangle or drown his victims. He used his, quote, butchering skills that he learned while he was in the army to dispose of the bodies in a large garden or a bonfire. This was when he lived, he lived in a house first. Yes, before his apartment. He lived in a, before flooding the apartment or whatever. So he lived in a house. Mm Mm-hmm. However, in 1981, Nilsson moved to an upper floor apartment, there it is, not having the room in a garden to bury bodies or having a bonfire anymore, he would keep the victim's remains in his apartment in duffel bags or plastic bags, but neighbors began to notice a foul smell. This is when Nelson attempted to flush some of the remains down the toilet, leading to a clog in the building's plumbing system. A drain company was called by him to unclog the sewer system in the apartment building. The cleaning company found the sewer packed with flesh-like substance, and upon closer inspection, some small bones were found along with more flesh. Initially, it was thought that perhaps they were chicken bones, but when doing more investigation, they were discovered to be human in origin. Dennis Nelson was arrested in 1983, and when police searched his apartment, they found three heads in his cupboard. They also searched the house that he had lived previously in and found 13 more bodies there. Upon his arrest, he gave extensive details about his crimes. When he was held in prison to await his pending trial, he wrote over 50 notebooks of his memories of the crimes to assist the prosecution. During his trial, it was reported that Nelson was cold and distant. He was charged with six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder, to which he pleaded not guilty by reason of mental defect. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term set at 25 years, The Home Secretary later imposed a whole-life tariff, which would mean he could never be released. However, the Home Secretary was stripped of his power and to set term minimums in 2002. Nelson died in 2018 of a pulmonary embolism and peritoneal hemorrhage. We got this information from a Biography.com article, as well as Murderpedia and Wikipedia pages on Dennis Nelson, all of which will be linked in our show notes. This was the first case I thought of as soon as they found bones in the drain. It's just that detail, 
has stuck with me about this case. I just can't get over the fact that he was the one that called the company, not thinking that they would immediately think this is human. Yeah, I'm wondering if, again, like, you can't understand the minds of these people, but I'm wondering if he thought, like, oh, if I'm the one calling, they won't suspect it's me. Even though it's my drain. Yeah, I think, like, the whole apartment was having plumbing issues, and so he's like, oh, everybody's everybody's plumbing system is messed up. Maybe I'm wrong, though. But yeah, he maybe if he thought, like, oh, if I call it in, it won't be suspicious. That's crazy. Yeah, absolutely bonkers. So to end this episode, we tallied a total of 10 green flags and six red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of CSI does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. Also, I think this is a record for like number of flags that we've given out. This is definitely the most amount of green flags we've had. Or like even like a total, like we we have 10 green flags, six red flags. That's 16 flags. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of flags. <laughs> this is a very in-depth episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us about anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye.